0: Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership, and social issues. We want to engage with ideas on what it means to be a free human being in pursuit of human flourishing.
1: Hello and welcome to the CDI podcast. I'm Dylan Edgel, Assistant Director of the University of Central Arkansas Center for Community and Economic Development. We at the CCED have been looking for ways to speak more directly to issues of race and racial injustice that affects all of our communities. To address this, we've created the Arkansas Racial Equity Summit that will take place on October 8th from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Zoom. To provide an opportunity for our CDI network to learn more about the history of racial injustice in Arkansas, the racial disparities we see today, and what our communities can do moving forward to address this issue in our own communities. Our guest today is here to speak about his career, his work in Conway and around Arkansas, and issues of racial inequality that we face in our communities. Dr. Philip Fletcher is the executive director of the City of Hope Outreach, which is a nonprofit organization that provides housing food, community, and hope to individuals living in under-resourced areas in central Arkansas. He's also a speaker and works to develop nonprofit organizations across the state of Arkansas. We at UCA outreach work with Dr. Fletcher extensively, and he is a CDI year three speaker. Dr. Fletcher, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks a lot, Dylan. It's glad to be here.
1: Awesome. Uh, Well, to start us off, can you just tell us a little bit about your career and um, how you got to where you are today?
0: Yeah, so transplant here to the city of Conway. Uh, Me and my family, we moved here April 2007. Uh, We were a military family. I was a uh, combat arms officer and uh, our goal was really just to be here for two years. I was finishing seminary, uh, then was going back on active duty. Uh, But different plans happened and uh, started the City of Hope outreach in September of 2007. So we're celebrating 13 years this month. So that's cool. Um so yeah, that's how it got started and we've been here ever since. Um uh, kids have graduated high school, one has finished college, uh, the other two are in the midst of it and so uh we're empty nesters right now. My wife, she is uh training to be a midwife and help women give birth. Uh so, you know, Conway is home and just want to Uh, Give back as much as possible. And so that's part of what City of Hope Outreach is
1: Yeah, you developed some uh, deep roots here in Conway Yeah,
0: Yeah, we uh, I figure once you start looking to buy a house, you know, you pretty much said (laughs) hey We're gonna be here for a minute. So that's that's where we're at in our stage in life right now.
1: Awesome. Yeah Uh, Well, um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, City of Hope Outreach um, and how you guys started uh, in, in Conway?
0: Yeah, so um, as I said, we started in 2007 and we became an official nonprofit in 2009, and our focus is threefold, education, housing, and community development. And so out of that, we have an after-school initiative called Cahoe Academy, uh, and it serves two different communities here in Conway. Then uh, we have a growing housing initiative, one part permanent housing, one part transitional, and one part uh, Sustainable housing. And so uh, we have a home for men. Uh, it's called the Hope Home, and that's our transitional housing. And so men can come stay there for 12 to 18 months, uh, and we help them uh, get a job. Um, they volunteer at the organization, they contribute, uh, they go through case management, those types of things, and then uh, we get help them get established on their own at the end of their goal setting. Um, we are in the midst of uh, opening what is called Hope Village, and that is a small homes uh, initiative, so it's going to be 10 small homes or tiny homes, uh, affectionately what they're called, and it'll be five one-bedroom, five two-bedrooms to support individuals and families who are homeless, veterans, and then low-income families, um, and so we are start infrastructure work soon, um, and hopefully Uh, have a house or two built and and housed in 2021. So really excited about that. And then the third part of our housing is our homeless prevention program that we're gonna be doing. And that is to uh, really work with families and individuals who are facing eviction, um, even in this difficult COVID season that we're in, um, and help them so they don't fall behind on rent or utilities. And so that's a program we'll be starting in October. And then on the community development end, we help start nonprofits. And so uh, we work with UCA Outreach um, and have helped start three nonprofits in Arkansas and the cities of Mitchellville, Eudora, and Corning, Arkansas. Uh, really appreciate that. And then we have our Coho Gardens that provides uh, free produce uh, to families and individuals. And so we have four across the city um, that provide produce and then Ah, uh, we'll be opening what is called the Coho Small Market, and that'll provide uh, food and uh, work opportunities for people in the communities that we serve. And you know, we do some holiday stuff. So basically, that's what Coho does on a daily basis, and uh, enjoy it very much. We really want to just be an advocate for men, women, and children uh, who are designated as being low income uh, and homeless, and uh, really provoke hope and provide an opportunity not only for them to be served, but also an opportunity for them to serve in the organization. So even on my staff, I have some that who live in the communities and they work for Coho and and are are really involved in, obviously they have a heartbeat for the community because they live there. And so that's very exciting.
1: Absolutely. And that kind of speaks to your um, holistic approach, right? Like tackling all different aspects of someone's life and in the community that they live in and kind of transitioning a little bit, you know, we've um, we're, we're in this moment in our country of, you know, recognizing racial injustice and, and working towards racial justice. Um, and I wanted to ask a pretty broad question, um, but in, in terms of uh, community development, um, how does racial inequality um, impact our communities? How, do, how does it manifest itself uh, in our communities?
0: You know, the issues regarding race and interactions between, you know, individuals and then in groups, uh, you know, is a real, you know, complex thing, especially in a pluralistic society like our own. And then even more, you know, nearer here to Conway, Arkansas. Um, And so, you know, you can have a global view of this, but then when you get down on the ground level, uh, you begin to be able to see some of the, the nuances that are going on between people of um, different groups. And, you know, one of the things that we do, especially in our community development, is we want to focus on three things, the people, the place, and, and our presence. And regarding uh, the place, you know, like a Conway, it has a history. And, you know, we are, you know, you and me living here, and working here, we are, you know, standing on a whole bunch of layers of other stuff that came a year before, ten years before, a hundred years before, right? And you look up and you're like, well, why is like the city look like this? Why do some people live over here and some people live over here? You know, um, you know, economically and also uh, racially. And so we do hard work of understanding the place, like a Conway. Um, you know, understanding it's significant that a railroad track runs through uh, our town and it's significant that, you know, even like the universities, they're on one particular side of town, right, um, and not on the other side uh, of a town. And then, um, again, you're looking at the now the different ethnic groups. Like where we work, um, one of our trailer parks, it, it's pretty... Diverse, um, but more so, it, it tends Caucasian, followed by Latino, and then in Blacks. But in another community that we worked in uh, that closed last year, uh, Brookside Trailer Park, and that was east of uh, Conway, um, it was predominantly Latino. But when we dug deeper, it was families and individuals from Guatemala, Guatemala, and Honduras, not necessarily Mexico. Um, And so you have a different dynamic um, of those families, Honduran and Guatemalan versus those who would be from Mexico. So you can't approach them the same, right? And so that's why it's important then to understand the people. Then another community that we worked in, when we got started, it was predominantly black. Like all up and down the street, it was black. You cross over a stop sign, and then it was Latino on the other side. Okay. Um, and so these whole role of duplexes was majority black. You cross over a lot of the houses that were being rented and some duplexes were uh, predominantly Latino. Right. And um, in those relationships, it was kind of like everybody, black Americans stayed on this side, Latinos kind of just, you know, kept to themselves on this side. But recently uh, as of last year, Uh, that street that was predominantly black has now shifted to where the majority is Latino now, uh, up and down the street, and uh, it's radically flipped. And uh, for many of those black families, um, you know, they saved money, was able to get out and rent a house somewhere else in Conway. Um, They've had opportunity to live with other family members who save money. They're trying to, you know, marshal money and things like that. Others have uh, you know, finished school and they, they moved out as well. And so uh, paying attention to the place is very important. so when, if I were to look at a map 10 years ago when I got started, um, racially, uh, like the three areas we worked in was like you could just Caucasian here, Latino here, Black here, right? Now it's all shifted again. And there's a a host of reasons as to why it has shifted economically. Some, obviously, you know, you always have your little bit of interpersonal conflicts that happen um, that don't make like big law cabin news, but nonetheless uh, they happen. Um, And so the other thing is this is then you look at again, how people are living and where they are living. I'm I'm stuck on this because you framed it in community development, um, is like a lot of our zoning ordinances and things like that. So now you're looking at a political type thing that's happening at the city council level, right? And planning commission where um, zoning says, you know, you have these types of houses that can go here, these types of businesses that can go here, so on and so forth. And so because of that, that can, that has a relationship then to who can afford those kind of things, who can afford those type of houses, um, those type of businesses, and so then from there, based off those those zoning things, then you can see again, oh, you got certain groups over here uh, economically and racially versus other groups over here economically and racially, and you can look at uh, a relationship. Uh, between that uh, outcome and uh, zoning, uh, which then it rolls into our schools. So, you know, schools are district, are zoned, right? So if you live in these addresses, you go to a Ellen Smith or you go to a Bob Courtway or you go to Jim Stone, right? Um, but again, those kids, uh, more often than not, I know busing takes a play into this, but more often than not, um, the kids that live in those particular addresses due to that zoning who come from a particular economic situation and then more than likely have a particular ethnic makeup, you're going to find more of them in one school and then less of them probably in another school. All right. And so um, these are not disconnected things that are happening. Um, All of these things are, are related. And then um, like I, like I, mentioned we deal with homelessness as part of our strategic initiative. And so I looked up some numbers from my Hope Home director. So for 2019, uh, we had 78 contacts. So that was men who uh, came to the door or uh, a phone call was made to our office. They were looking for housing because they were on the street homeless. And so uh, last year, 75% of those were white. 21% were black. and I, I typically I've run into people, and they expect that uh economic uh disparity, housing disparity would fall more on black males, but the number of contacts we're getting is white males after white males after white males, even as um I am you know doing my day to day work and seeing a lot of the panhandlers, a lot of them are not black, they are they're white, right, and so. I think that's a discussion that we need to have is sometimes uh, people have this notion that uh, when you hear the word poor it's synonymous with black, when you hear anything related to poor it's synonymous with a black male, black female, black child. But uh, what I'm seeing is, and what we're seeing is um, that is not always the case. Okay. And so it's important. I think we have to revisit, some of these narratives that are being shared and, and look at the, the facts on the ground so that we could more appropriately tell the story about racial inequality. But then as we're more appropriately able to tell that story with facts, then we're able to come up with better solutions. Um, and then, you know, confront some of those things. Uh Yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear like more white people are in poverty than black people. But I mean, the the numbers don't lie. I know percentage wise, you know, you have more persons of color. But in in raw numbers, it's it's uh, white men and women. Um, And then it only makes sense because of the the city that we live in. So those are my thoughts on that. Nobody, Yeah.
1: Yeah, but we're saying like proportionally it it may be different but in, in the yeah. the raw numbers. Yeah. Um and it sounds like the um the issues you talked about like housing and zoning and mm-hmm. um, school district it sounds it uh, like systemic, right? Mm-hmm. These are the kind of like the systemic roots of these issues too. Um So yeah, I think that was those that was super interesting and it's Um, it's also interesting to note how interconnected those issues are, right? Um, it's, you you can't tackle it. Um, you can't tackle one at a time because they're all, they're all interconnected.
0: Right. Right. And and it's important to realize that, um, you know, in these discussions that's been happening, uh, really within the context of what happened at the end of May with George Floyd, uh, and what has spiraled out of all of that, uh, Post his his murder um, is really looking at some of this is surface level stuff, you know, and and like you said, we have to get down to the the root causes of these things. So, like, so you know, I mentioned George Floyd. Let me shift a little bit, right? So, um, like, for black men and women in re- in their relationship to to law enforcement, right? And you know you hear these thoughts of more and law enforcement are in these communities. You know they're responding to 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 calls, so on and so forth. Uh, but one of the questions I ask myself is this: is um, and I would pose to my advocates, you know, local and, and whoever is listening to this, is I would encourage them to look at the laws um, that are on the books that are making law enforcement able to interact with private citizens, okay, um, because, you know, some of these very sad events that have happened didn't need to happen at all, right, um, you, know, you know, you've know, you read things about, you know, broken taillight or, you know, what happened in Atlanta with a young man who was sleeping in his car uh, at the Wendy's, right, um, you know, in that case, home dude was sleeping in his car, right, he wasn't hurting any... He was actually, I would say, doing the right thing, right? He, he was inebriated, allegedly, and he was sleeping it off, sleeping it off. I'm like, cool. I'd rather him do that than be out on the road and hurt somebody. Um, but the fact that there's, there's these laws that are on the book uh, that manage so much of people's behavior, which then necessitates law enforcement interaction with uh, everyday people. How is it that we can create a greater distance um, so that law enforcement is really like, they're there, like somebody's really threatening my life. Like I got to call somebody and I'm really in trouble and I need somebody to get here once. I don't need to see the police. If I'm just, and it's real talk, if I'm just hanging out in my driveway, minding my business, you know what I'm saying? Like, leave me alone. So, Those are the the things, you know, you talk about systemic type stuff. Part is we have to get down into the laws that law enforcement officers have to enforce. So, which implies then that advocates need to go, advocates and private citizens need to go talk to their legislators, whether at the city level, state level, even the federal level, like, hey, we need to like change some of this stuff, right? Um, and those are some of the things also that needs to happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we've seen a lot of uh, momentum in recent weeks and months um, to, to try to get some of these changes uh, or, or issues even addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of moving on to that. Uh, I was going to ask if you had any advice for community leaders um, who want to address this issue. Um, maybe what's what's a good place to, to start in their own communities?
0: Best place to start is those relations, those relationships you've got already. Okay. Um, especially if you're in a work environment um, like, you know, you're in a university setting or, um, you know, Conway's got a lot of large, you know, type businesses where more than likely you're going to have two persons of different ethnicities come in contact together. So that's where you can start that discussion right there. Start that with somebody that you already know. Cause that relationship is already there and it won't be as awkward. It's going to be awkward, but it won't be as awkward as if you just walked up to me. I didn't know you before this. And you're just like, Hey, can I talk to you? What it's like to be black in America. I just be like, Who are you? Like, versus like, we've got a, a, a relationship that started right now for you to ask me that like two days from now. I'm like, Oh yeah, let's kick it. Let's go get some, some drinks and let's talk about it because we've got a relationship established already. So uh, leveraging those existing relationships that you have already. I think the other thing I would encourage people, and it seems so elementary and something I would always tell my kids is like, don't judge an entire group by the individual. All right. Um, Yeah, I got it. We're going to have negative interactions with a person. Right. But don't, Take that negative interaction and then broad brush it across everybody that shares same physical characteristics as him or her. Um, take everybody, each person that you come into contact with, um, on a one-on-one basis. And so I'm really echoing what Dr. King talked about: is of judging one on the basis of their character and not their skin color or any physical characteristics. Like I want to take you as as you. Um, Have I had a negative interaction with a white guy before? Yeah, sure. Okay, but I'm not going to have his decisions and what he did um, impact how I want to interact with you because that's not fair nor just, okay? Um, I I say that, too, because it happened to my daughter like two weeks ago um, here in town, and, you know, we had to, you know, deal with that as a family, and that happened at her work spot you know, where she's supposed to be working and, um, so I would encourage people don't judge an entire group on the basis of, of one negative interaction of an individual. Um, the other thing is we can't do it all alone. We have to find people who have common interests, uh, men and women who have common desires and goals to achieve progress and and to build on the things of the sixties, uh, You know, that's kind of like a benchmark. Somehow we have to build on those things. And then finally, uh, we have to do change that's going to be sustainable. Um, You know, we've been around this circle before, you know, and and here we are again. um, And we have to look for ways to do things that are sustainable um, and keep our eye on the ball and not get distracted by the next shiny thing that comes along because it'll happen. And then people will be like, "Okay, I scratched my itch. I feel better about myself. Now let me move on to the next thing." If if we are really concerned about uh, the dignity and worth of uh, of people, you know, you know, in in my case of of black men and women, um, I can't let that just be like a temporary thing, um, and you can't let it be a temporary thing. Um, and we have to lean on one another. Uh, not only to support the dignity and worth of, of black people, but then, you know, your dignity and worth and the person that you work with in the next cubicle. Uh, I want to ultimately be concerned with the dignity and worth of everybody. So uh, those are the things I would I would encourage uh, local community leaders to consider as we're moving forward. Because, hey, we're in this, we're living next door to each other. We work together. And so we have to find ways uh, we have to find common ground. We have to find ways to to grow together and heal together, um, so that we can leave something beautiful for the next generation.
1: That's well, very well put. Um, and I, I like what you said about uh, you know not just having these actions just be a flash in the pan and having it be more sustainable. You know, this yeah. is the start of. Um, work that we're trying to get into, um, you know, racial justice work is something we've never directly delved into uh, as an organization, but uh, we will be hosting our racial equity summit on October eighth, And we are going to follow those, or that event with some follow up events to um, show our community leaders ways that they can be more involved, and, um, you know, work towards uh, equity and equality in their own communities. Um, but Dr. Fletcher, I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today. This is a really great conversation.
0: Yes, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And if you want to learn more about Dr. Fletcher and his work, you can visit the City of Hope Outreach's website at coho58.org or learn more about Dr. Fletcher himself by visiting philipfletcher.org. On upcoming episodes, the CDI podcast will feature CDI graduates and participants, community partners and community and economic development experts from across Arkansas and the Mid-South. We hope you join us next week on the CDI Podcast.
0: thank you for listening to the humanity matters podcast for more information visit the website philipfletcher.org or send us an email at humanitymatterspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com and remember as always if we remember to live in hope we can do the impossible so be love, be kind and be generous